You are listening to The Real Faith Stories Podcast, interviews with people who chose to boldly follow their faith. I'm your host, Brian Robinson. Now, let's meet our guest and hear their story. Luke, it's so good to have you on Real Faith Stories. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Brian. I'm glad to be here, man. You've been through so much in your life from being abandoned by your parents at an early age to being homeless for a year to a wild encounter with the Lord that brought incredible healing to your life to gaining victory over this orphan lie of never feeling good enough to starting a homeless ministry that's recently received a grant of land and money to start construction on several buildings for what you're calling Miracle City. So please share a bit about what happened as you grew up and fill in the gaps for us. My parents were both drug addicts, and they left me and my sister and my brother and my half-brother in an apartment. I was about five or six years old when that happened. They just left, and they didn't come back. And we had some uh, tall boy Schlitz beer in the refrigerator and a box of Sugar Smacks cereal, and that's kind of what they left us with. And so, Wow. They literally just left you and your siblings. Yeah. I mean, I, I never did get the backstory. I've, I had re-engaged with them later in life, but never really got the story of why they left. By the time I re-engaged with them, I didn't feel like it was even necessary to bring it up or if they would even remember the state that they were in. But mm-hmm. So when my half-sister, who was nine, she went to the neighbor's house and was asking for food. That's when the, our neighbors called Child Protective Services and we all got dispersed to other people. Mm -hmm. And so I was raised by, from the time I was six years old, raised by somebody who was once married to my aunt, and then they got a divorce and he remarried. And for some reason, they said I could come live with them. And both had grown up in poverty. Together, they were poor. And so it was a real, I don't know, it just grew up in poverty. And again, Mm -hmm. I, I didn't realize it at the time. They were older as well. So they had kind of raised their kids. And here comes this little weird six-year-old. And uh, I just kind of crashed on the sofa there for for a while and eventually moved out when I was 14 and just bounced around and managed to finish high school and managed to even get a couple of years college. And it was really nothing foundational in my life that could equip me to actually be successful in life. So it led to when I was six, I started drinking alcohol, like liquor. When I was 11, I started smoking marijuana. And then it just kind of uh, fanned out from there into whatever was available on into my 20s. Now, you ended up homeless. Explain yep. that a little, please. I was attending the University of Texas at San Antonio. I was already on academic probation, had two classes that I was taking. I had dropped everything else. My dad had passed away. The, the guy who raised me, he had passed away the semester before that. And I just didn't know how to handle any of that stuff, man. And so I had two midterm exams the next day and my roommate showed up and he had a half gallon of Jim Beam. And I knew I could either study for these two tests or get wasted. And that's kind of what I did. I reached over and I took the lid off of the off of the bottle of whiskey and I threw it across the room because I didn't plan on needing it. And so finished that off. And the next day I I Moved back to the south side of San Antonio, where I was from. I was sleeping on the couch at a friend's house. And eventually, I bought a car from my cocaine dealer for $50. I lived out of my car. And so here and there, I would sleep at a different person's house or I would sleep in my car. And so that's the big joke is 
my address was 1984 Impala. Wow. How long were you in that state, living in the car? About a year. Now, something happened at the age of 22. What was that? I had dated a girl in college, and then we broke up. And that was what's funny is us breaking up was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for me to throw away the lid on that bottle of whiskey. Even whenever I had nowhere to live, I still had a job. So I kept a job. I'd kind of hit that rough spot that lasted about a year and a half. And about a year of it was me living out of my car. I had gotten another girl pregnant and I didn't know anything about it because she moved away for school. So at 22, I ran into the girl that I had dated before and we decided that we were going to get together the next day. And also within two weeks of that, I had found out about my son. And so I had kind of walked away from God. I had started even studying Eastern religion. I read the Bhagavad Gita and the Dhammapada and, mm-hmm. you know, all of these other Eastern religion books and things like that. But those two things in, in my life, and I tell people right now that I think that my son and my wife, that was the love of God in my life in that moment. And I remember calling at that time girlfriend, now wife, after I had met my son for the first time. And I got just wrecked with a love that I'd never experienced in my life before, a love that that I didn't think I was capable of experiencing at all. How do you mean? Well, my biological parents abandoned me. The people who raised me, they weren't abusive or mean. They were just indifferent, mm-hmm. you know? So I went through my life feeling like I could not be loved. And I met my son's mother in a restaurant, and uh, I looked at this little boy, and he looked at me, and he like put his arms out to me, and he wanted me to pick him up. He was six months old at the time. And I picked up this little boy, and like he put his arms around me, and he didn't judge me. I felt the love of God coming out of this little boy. Wow. And it was the same with my wife. She knew the backstory and she still wanted to be with me. Well, my girlfriend at the time. Yeah. And so it was just these two things converging. And I remember calling her and I said, the love that I feel right now, I can't explain it. it I don't understand it. But all I know is that this love tells me that God has to be real. You know, God has to be real. This isn't just like, chemicals running through my body or something. This is something powerful and and transformative. And so, yeah, at that point, I had moved into a little bitty apartment that I could rent through my beanbag and my bong and my alarm clock in there. And (laughs) I decided I was going for for a new life. Moving up, baby. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of where it started. So this changed the entire trajectory of your life, that experience of seeing your son and then the unconditional love you felt from him, as well as the unconditional love you felt from your girlfriend, who eventually became your wife, right? Yeah, absolutely. What started shifting? What happened? Well, at first it was knowing that something needed to change, but also having that orphan spirit, it became a performance thing. Let me pause there and ask you to explain the orphan spirit, because I think it's something a lot of people deal with. So I guess the best way that I could explain it is living life as though I'm fatherless. I lived life from a place of rejection. I lived life feeling like I needed to convince people that I was worth sticking around for. And in every instance that I was in, every encounter with people, impressing them so that they would think that I was worth sticking around for was the driving force. 
I didn't realize it. It was like almost a subconscious thing, like breathing, like I have to do this or they're going to reject me or they're going to leave me. And then living from that place of rejection, I mean, what you focus on is what you see. So all I saw everywhere was rejection. If somebody criticized me, it wasn't them saying, hey, you need to fix this. It was them saying, you're not good enough to be here. And it causes a lot of pain. Is it fair to say the mantra of someone who has the orphan spirit is, you're not enough? That's absolutely, absolutely right. You're, you're not enough. How does that get overcome? What do you do to get on the other side of that? Oh, man. There's probably days when I'm still trying to overcome it realistically. I mean, there's artifacts of that in my thinking that still need to be overcome. I was very much focused on performance. It's this weird paradox where you feel like you're not good enough, so you perform more knowing that you're never going to be good enough, right? Yeah. So an example that I use is a lot of people will say something like, oh, we're all sinners. And I personally don't subscribe to that simply from an identity standpoint, because it makes no sense to call me a sinner, you know, when a sinner sins. So if you say you're a sinner, but don't sin, it's like you're telling me you're a fish, but don't swim. It doesn't make any sense to me. It was just hard, man, because I always felt like I was working against who I was. Was there a moment where you got this understanding from the Lord about you're not an orphan? And what did that look like? There were some key milestone moments that really did change things. The first one was in, I guess it was 2008 or 2009. I read a book, and the book was by Chris Vallotton called Supernatural Ways of Royalty. Basically, what I took away from that book was that in Christ, I have a new life. I'm, I'm something different, right? Mm -hmm. And there's ways that I used to think and believe that if I change that, it's going to transform my life. And so at that point, it, it just started kind of setting the stage for me to take all of these different areas of my life where I was feeling miserable. I mean, it was miserable, Brian. You know, I'd started a ministry three years prior to that. I was on staff at a church, but I was absolutely miserable for so many, so many reasons. And so that started set, setting the stage for these other things to happen. And one of the things that really kind of kicked the door open was I was in a church service and somebody got up and for some reason they read John chapter one, I think it's verse 11 and 12. And in that verse, those verses, it says to all who receive him, all who believe on his name, they've been given the right to be called sons of God, born not of the will of man or the will of flesh, but born of God. And as soon as they read that, I heard the voice of the Lord very clearly say to me, son, you're not abandoned anymore. And I believed it. And I, I had heard sermons preached on it before. I've read all the scriptures that say it, but like word and spirit coming at you at the same time was something that really stuck. And so at that point, I realized that I needed to live out being a son. And having been orphaned, I never knew how to do that. And so that's kind of where I was in my mid-30s, <laughs> trying, to, trying to figure out how to be a kid again, you know, how to be a son. So there was a mindset shift that had to happen, obviously. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes when you're carrying around extra weight, you don't realize that you're carrying that weight until you put it down. You know, that's where I found myself at the end of 2012. I was in a funk. But the truth is, it was an intensifying of what I had felt all the time. And, and it was just this crazy depression. And 
I was going to go to a conference at the church that I attended, and I remember sitting around the fire the night before with some friends of mine telling them, I'm, I'm not going to this conference because I just need to go to another conference. I need to encounter God, and I don't know what that looks like. This church that I attended at the time was known for being just, by my standards, very wacky. Like I haven't historically been a very demonstrative person in worship. I would consider myself to be pragmatic. I think about things, and you know, I'd always been part of the charismatic church, but had also been very cynical and skeptical of what I saw there. Sounds like you're about to get wrecked. Oh my gosh. And it's funny, the church that I went to, one of the things that happened there so frequently was this thing that everybody called holy laughter. I told another pastor friend of mine, I'm like, hey man, what is this about? And he said, man, show me in the Bible where it says that. And I'm like, I couldn't find it. And so I thought this can't be of God. You can't find it in the Bible. And that was just like indicative of how I viewed many things that I had experienced in the charismatic church. Being pragmatic, right? Yeah, of course. Right. So I show up at this conference and there's a pile of students there from Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. And they are weird as all get out, man. Like I am looking at these people like, are you kidding me right now? Do you even know God? What spirit are you of? Anyway. Where was this, by the way? Uh, it was here. It was in Magnolia. Magnolia, Texas. Yeah, Freedom Fellowship Church. Okay. Uh, it was when, when John Parks was out there. And uh, he was a good spiritual father to me and still is because he could handle all of my questions and not be offended by my my skepticism. Isn't that good? Yeah. Well, he told me one time, he's like, man, I'd rather have wildfire than no fire. <laughs> like, okay. I understand that. So anyway, I'm there in this moment and... This guy walks up to me and he has just got this crazy look on his face and he slams his hand on my chest and he yells, fire. And then I just look over at my wife and I said, hey, do you ever feel like you're missing something? And the guy was completely undaunted by my criticism and he kind of walked off and I said, you know what, man? I just said, you know what, Lord? I'm just going to assume that every person in this room is having their own experience with you right now and I'm going to stop judging them. And all I know is that I need a touch from you. And man, right there in that moment, just from the pit of my gut, it felt like a spring was bubbling up. Mm. And I started laughing my head off. Like I put my hand over my mouth because I was afraid I would be distracting, which in retrospect sounds a little silly considering (laughs) what was going on there. But uh, I walked to the back of the room and I just stayed back there for 20 minutes doing something I didn't believe in. And it was horrific, man. I mean, I was crying. I was laughing so hard. I was sweating. I could barely stand up. Truth be told, when all was said and done, I felt like I had just smoked a joint. Uh, I just had never been intoxicated by the presence of the Lord in such a, to such a degree. And so after a while, the Lord starts to speak to me. And he says, this is the joy that I have had for you the whole time you have been depressed. And every problem in your life that has led you to this place, he said, this is my response to it. It's not like he was laughing at me for having the problems. It's just that the things that had been so big in my sight were so small to him. And in that moment, I felt a depression and an anxiety that I had never identified before. It was that weight that I didn't know I was carrying. Yeah, I felt it leave completely. And I walked in this continuous state of joy after that. 
And the Lord is good. And I said to him, so I, I wanted an answer to that question. Show me that in the Bible. And I said, Lord, where is this in the Bible? And he said, a merry heart's like a good medicine. I said, that's it? He says, well, don't you feel better? <laughs> I feel better than I've ever felt in my entire life. And so in that moment, having that encounter with the joy of God and with the peace of God and understanding that those two things aren't emotions, that those are weapons that we're to wield. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Like you need strength when there's resistance, right? I had what would be considered a low adversity quotient. I don't know if you've read that book, but I could not handle when things were coming at me. And so just having this baptism of love where I was embraced by the affections of my father and and I experienced his joy and his peace, it's been a game changer ever since, man. Like, not to say that there's not moments whenever I, where I just feel blue, you know? Sure. But this ever-present cloud that was over me is gone, man. And it's not like I walk around laughing my head off all the time, but you know, every now and then, like I said, this thing that I don't even believe in that I've come to call the Holy Ghost tickle fight in times when I need it most, it just hits me and it's, it's glorious. Mm. It's just a reminder of what's always there. When you get to these moments where you're feeling like the tank is empty, like the enemy's trying to press in on you again with depression, how do you overcome that now? Oh, man. I honestly, like, I don't ever really feel like I'm under attack from the enemy. What I'm going to say might sound like a platitude, but, you know, there's a relational depth to it. I just acknowledge that the Lord is with me, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, he's ever present. He's, I can't get away from him, you know? I, I can't outrun him, and I don't want to. Like, I just love his presence so much. And it's not something that I have to work to get into. I was speaking at an event a couple of weeks ago, and I told them, you know, I'm like, we don't worship to enter into God's presence. We worship because we're already in his presence. Yeah. And stopping what I'm doing, just stopping in that moment when my thoughts might be getting out of control or when, and just acknowledging, acknowledging the presence of the Lord. Man, that's just just a game changer. That's the Spirit's fruit, right? It's his. It's not something you sit there and flex and then it pops out and there's the Spirit of joy. Right. Yeah. I just reach up and grab it and take a big bite of that juicy fruit and let the the juice of peace run down my face and get messy and just enjoy being in the presence of my father. <laughs> I love that. It's a great picture. You moved out of this whole space of what you were doing at the time and started an entire ministry for the homeless as a direct result of your own personal experience, correct? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was something that we had never expected to do. Being a quote-unquote uneducated addict, um, I had managed to carve out a a pretty successful career in technology and had been doing that. And my wife and I had been attending a church up here in Conroe, and and we really felt like we were called to serve the poor, and we didn't know what that looked like. So there wasn't this proactive thought, I'm going to start a ministry for the homeless. No, no, not at all. It was more like I should be doing something to serve the poor. So initially, we we went to the leadership of the church that we attended and asked them how we could serve the poor in the church. And they're like, well, we do that on Easter and Thanksgiving, which I, I commend them for that. But there's 363 other days of the year when people are hungry and 
We felt like maybe we should do something that was a little bit more frequent and consistent. And so we started trying to find other ministries that were doing something that we could kind of just jump onto. I, I had no intention, no plans of leading anything. And we just couldn't find anything. And we came across some things that were like very much evangelical focus where you listen to a guy yell about going to hell for 45 minutes and then you get half a cup of rice with a couple of tablespoons of chili on top. I didn't feel like that was going to be life-changing for anybody. And so we didn't know. We're sitting in church. It was January the 1st, 2006, New Year's Day. And my pastor is preaching a message. And he said, if you see something that needs to be done and nobody else is doing it, maybe it's because you're supposed to. I've always been one for not overcomplicating the upstart and that following Saturday, my wife and I, we went to the Walmart that was by our house and we bought two three-pound bags of frozen tater tots, five dozen eggs, and 200 flour tortillas and uh, went home and made some potato and egg tacos and decided we were going to go serve the homeless. And so we loaded the kids up in the car and we lived in spring at the time and we really felt like the Lord would, we would go down into Houston because that's where all the homeless were. I mean, there's no homeless in Conroe, right? But nevertheless, the Lord kind of led us up to Conroe, and instead of going out toward the lake when we hit 105, we went east, and man, we saw people everywhere. We saw people with backpacks just walking all over the place, and so we would just pull up to them and ask them if, if we could share some food with them. And so eventually, we started to find out where all of the camps were, and every Saturday, we would go to these camps and we would sit down and have breakfast with people and we would talk to them about what was going on in their life. And there, there wasn't this, okay, everybody gather around because the man of God is going to preach and then you'll get some food. It was just really like, hey, so what's, what's happening? What's going on? And, and it, was, it was beautiful, man. We found ourselves doing things that we didn't think we would be doing, like dressing head wounds and going to see people in jail. So, But at that point, that was what we were going to do. I mean, we didn't have any intention on doing more than that. That was the extent of your thought at that time. Yeah, but we've started calling God Jehovah Sneaky because <laughs> you know, we would say, Lord, we're not going to start a ministry. And he would say, sure, you're not going to start a ministry. Wink, wink. Yeah. And so within probably six months, the church that we were attended found out what we were doing and asked if we could let other people be a part of it. We didn't want to start taking 20 people down into a homeless camp of six. And likewise, most of the people who wanted to serve with us were, were ladies, and I didn't want to send them into homeless camps by themselves. And so mm -hmm. we started just gathering at a park every Saturday. And that is something that has been happening for the past 14 years. And it just grew to the first time we were out there, we had nine volunteers and 12 homeless people. And now we'll serve upwards of 120 people every Saturday. It's incredible. We have probably 24 different churches that are involved with us to do that. And it's just kind of taken on a life of its own. So then that just kind of created this progression, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're there on Saturdays and we see that we need to be there more. We need to be available more. And so then we, we opened the Conroe House of Prayer, which is a church for the homeless that meets five days a week. We didn't realize it at the time, but that was kind of our intake process. We start seeing people who want to change their lives, but there's really no mechanism in place for them to do that. So we start opening transition houses and moving folks into these transition houses and getting them mentors and helping them learn how to manage their money and helping them have encounter with God and helping them learn about healthy relationships and healthy emotions and boundaries and giving them holistically the tools that they need to succeed in life. The Lord has just built and added to 
that we, for example, we noticed that many of the people we serve at the House of Prayer and at Breakfast in the Park come from a, a particular community here in Conroe. And so we thought, wouldn't it be great if we could start reaching out to the children in that community today so that we're not serving them as adults in our homeless ministry 10 years from now? Exactly. So we started a, a ministry called Destiny Kids that has been operating for the past eight years over in Southeast Conroe. And the point being teaching these children, these kids, that everything that they've seen from their parents or grandparents or cousins or whatever, that's not necessarily the destiny that God has for them. And so that's even evolved into something called City of Lights, which is more geared toward youth and people in high school. And now within that program, our leaders there are helping kids get their ID, helping them apply for college and helping them apply for financial aid. So we have these kids now who things could have gone dramatically different, and now they're going to college. Wow. Wow is right. It's awesome. Yeah. Now you've got this miracle city that's going on. Tell us about that. That is utter mind blow. I mean, it all started with hash browns and eggs and tortillas. Come on. Yeah, man. In the early days, We had this vision. We called it a one-stop shop, I guess you could say, for all of the needs of the homeless. And we started talking about this 10 years ago. The Miracle City concept is this one-stop shop, everything under one roof, where you can basically take care of the intake, then bring people all the way through the skills development, healthy relationship development, and even get them applied to college and help them become gainfully employed, etc. That's the plan. Uh Yeah. And then, and then in addition to that, there would also be, and there's going to be people who they're not going to be able to transition, whether it be mental health issues or physical disabilities. So with on, on that campus as well, we would have long-term supportive housing. So what we would have there is we'd have a day center and that would house our church. We have a dining hall there. They could do their homeless folks could come in and do their laundry. They could take showers, get a meal. We'd have a computer room there for them to get on a computer. And all of that would be there at the Conroe House, at the Miracle City Day Center. For those who were ready to make a change, we would move them into one of five planned transition houses. And that would essentially look kind of like a group home, but it would be for a temporary period. And then that's where we would then incorporate them into the empowerment center that we'll have on site, which will have a host of different classes. You know, if I could break it down simply, you know, not just helping people get a job. We want to teach people how to get a job. We want to teach people how to do a job, but most importantly, we want to teach people how to have a job. There's there's people out there who are incredibly skilled, but they don't know how to have a job. They don't know where to value that. They also don't necessarily have the emotional maturity to operate in an adult environment. Does that make sense? It does. And so that's what would happen through our empowerment center. This is not just a dream. You've actually gotten a grant for this and some significant contributions. So have you broken ground on this? Yeah, we broke ground on five acres of land that was given to us by the city of Conroe to do this. The city is like excited about this idea. In fact, our new mayor has been so helpful in helping facilitate all of this. It's, it's been tremendous. So before we even had taken 
possession of the land, though, the, the Woodlands United Methodist Church had committed $100,000 toward the project. And then we just started having more people. I mean, we didn't even have the land and people were giving us money to do this. You know, <laughs> it was fantastic. And so then we were really excited about the momentum. And then COVID hit and we thought, oh man, this is really going to delay our plans. Well, the crazy thing is like, I don't know, that's what you call miracle territory, right? Yeah. Like when you've got Pharaoh behind you and the Red Sea in front of you, you have no options but the miraculous. And that's kind of what we've experienced. I mean, we were awarded a grant for $1.25 million to build our day center. Come on. And that, that whole project is about a, about a $2 million project. And so we're two-thirds of the way there. That's amazing. I had a lady that I've never met before basically show up at our office and, and hand us a quarter of a million dollars toward the project. <laughs> we just got another grant from uh, an awesome company called The Work Lodge. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they have a philanthropic arm of what they do called the Gabriel Project. And Mike Thacker, the founder, his vision is that there's two sides of every coin. One side is going to be the income producing, and the other side is going to be the part that changes the world. And Mm. so they just gave us a grant for $100,000. So it's incredible. We had launched an initiative on October the 15th to raise $900,000 by February 15th. And that would give us our day center and it would also give us our empowerment center. So that would build two properties, two two structures on the property. And that goal is $900,000, $150,000 for phase one and then $750,000 for phase two. And so far, just over what a month and a half, we're at three hundred about three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. This is incredible. It's aptly named Miracle City. Oh man. So appropriate. Everybody thinks about the timing of God as him making you wait. And we're kind of experiencing the opposite of that right now. Like I tell people I feel like a chubby kid running downhill. You know <laughs> my, my momentum is carrying the momentum is carrying me faster than that can move. And that brings up a statement that I'd love to kind of close out with here and then have you pray for our listeners, Luke. Mm -hmm. And that is all lights are green until they're red. Yeah. What does that mean to you? So I used to be one of these, I used to be paralyzed, like doing anything because I wanted to wait until the Lord told me to do it clearly. And so I was always waiting for the go, the go, the go. And it's ironic, this very concept that we're talking about. Several years ago, there was a homeless gentleman who came to the house of prayer. And he was homeless, but he was an amazing musician. He was an amazing prophetic voice and a great preacher. as an old African-American gentleman named, named Joshua. And I'm sitting there and I'm talking to Joshua about everything that we want to do with this concept. And I said, I just don't know if it's what the Lord wants me to do. And he looked at me like it was the dumbest thing he had ever heard. And he said, are you feeding people? I said, yeah. He said, are you helping people? I said, yeah. So you preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? I said, yeah. He goes, does that sound like something God would want you to do? And in that moment, it was like, you know what? I'm just going to start moving forward until he tells me to stop. I used to wrestle with this idea. Well, is it me or is it the Lord? As though if it came out of my brain, it was bad. But if I'm if I'm being transformed by the renewing of my mind, that mind is being renewed to the mind of Christ. So I'm going to have some God ideas. You right know? on. Yeah. And so that's it. I'm just going to move forward. And it's worked. It's worked. There's been things that I'm like, hey, I think we should do this. And I start taking some steps and it just don't feel right. Mm-hmm. And so you can't steer a parked car, Brian. 
So you've just decided to go until the red light pops up and you get directed a different way, if at all. Yeah. You've shared a lot of incredible things here. What's one of the big takeaways that you'd like someone listening to this receive? First of all, you're good enough. That's probably the biggest thing. Once you know that you're good enough, good enough for what? Well, good enough. You're just good enough. That's a game changer. There's so much that God has for his sons and daughters that we never take hold of because we don't think we're good enough. And and the truth is, the Lord spoke something to me several years ago. You wrestle with this idea of, well, is is this the Lord or is it my pride? As though those are the only two options. Right. I was reading Joshua chapter three, and in the middle of it, somebody walked up and they asked me if I would be in charge of something. And at that time, I didn't consider myself even to be a leader. And I put my finger down where I was reading, and I said, sure, I'll do that. And then when they walked away, I continued reading. And the next thing that I read was the Lord saying to Joshua, he said, on this day, I will exalt you before all of Israel so that they will know that as I was with Moses, I am with you also. The Lord wants to exalt you. Like he wants to put you on a pedestal and to place you on display because you are his treasured workmanship. Peter says, if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God in due time, he will exalt us. And it's not that we're looking for glory. It's not that we're looking for this exaltation for our own selfish gain, but we are masterpieces and we were created to do great works, works that are so far beyond our depth that it'll blow your stinking mind. And all we have to do is realize we're good enough because he's made us good enough. I could replay that a million times and just soak in that truth. Thanks for sharing that, Luke. My pleasure. I would love to have you pray for our listeners here as we finish up, please. Oh, yeah. Oh, Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your ever presence in our life. Thank you that you desire good things for your children. And Lord, I ask that for everyone who hears this, Lord, that shame would not stick to them anymore. Father, that they would feel the weight of shame lift off of them, that they would know deep in their innermost being that that the gaze that you have fixed on them is a gaze of delight and wonder and pleasure and that you love them. Father, I ask that you would begin to awaken vision in them. Lord, give their minds the capacity to to see so far beyond their own capabilities and to know that you're there with them every step of the way. Father, I ask that you would give them a greater revelation of the depth of your love for them in everything, every area of their life, Lord, and that they would know your peace, that they would know your joy and that they would manifest the perfection that the sacrifice of Christ made available to all of those who are sanctified. And we thank you, Lord, that they are going to live each day from here forward, not carrying the burden of not being good enough, that they are going to know that they were created by your hand with purpose and for your pleasure. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Luke. It was an honor to hear your story. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to share it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the show and share this with someone you believe would be encouraged and motivated by these stories. 
Until next time, I'm Brian Robinson reminding you that the greatest decision you could ever make is to ask Jesus Christ to become the Lord of your life. If you haven't done that, read Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Thanks again for listening.